Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Hello, welcome to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. Thank you for joining us again. And I hope you are enjoying your spring. Welcome to spring. Today, I'm talking to an amazing woman that I've been trying to get <laughs> for a while now. Her name is Tsakane Malulega, and I love this surname, and I keep on telling her not to change it. She is the Deputy Auditor General of South Africa. How are you? I'm well, Dudu. It's so great to see you. How are you? I'm good. Thank goodness for technology, or else I would not be having this conversation with you at this time. You know, we've met over the years, uh, mainly in business settings. I've never really um, found out much about your upbringing. And I'm just thinking, when I look at people as adults, I'm always trying to envisage what they were like as kids. Uh, what were your pastimes? What, what, what occupied your time before you were a teenager? Before I was a teenager. Mm. So it's important that I give you context. Otherwise, yeah. my answer won't, won't make sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, I grew up in a family with my mom and dad and three other siblings, and they're my best friends to this day. Yeah. Um, but importantly, I grew up in social movement. Um, and I grew up around lots of aunts and uncles and my grandparents. They were all just within walking distance of each other's home. Mm. Um, and our family ran a supermarket. Now, everybody in the family worked in that supermarket. <laughs> it didn't matter who you were, how old you were. <laughs> I was at the till from nine years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so so my, my pastime was working at the store because that's what you do. Um, you know, even after we left Sochanguve in 87 and moved to Johannesburg, my holidays were still largely spent in Sochanguve because that's where family was. And of course, what you do over holidays <laughs> is you work. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and you worked every single day. Um, in those days, you would only have uh, Christmas Day off um, and you had the benefit of working half a day on New Year's Day. But otherwise, it was work. So... I used to love working the till. Um, and that's what I, I did. I mean, as time went on, I, I started supervising the other cashiers and then I yeah. did other things. So my, my childhood was largely characterized by time spent in the store doing different things. And I recall quite vividly how I took pride in my cash takings for the for the day, reconciling yeah. them successfully uh, the following morning. Uh, I, I recall how, um, you know, instead of taking lunch, I would sometimes drive with a designated driver and deliver groceries to communities because in those days, few people had cars. So our, our family found it quite important to support the community yeah. by delivering the heavier groceries. So mini oh, meal nice. deliveries were something I did for fun. So you started Mr. D years ago, hey? <laughs> well, it wasn't fast food, unfortunately. It was a lot of maize meal. Yeah. I remember that. And uh, maybe it was a predominantly Shitonga speaking community. So there was a lot of maize meal delivery <laughs> happening. <laughs> 
Well, interesting. I hope you you had time to play a little bit as well. I suppose play was limited to what we did within the family. Um, and then I was at boarding school as a teenager. So there was a lot of play there. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, but that's as much as I recall in terms of the things I did outside of school wow. um, was, was work and stuff. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. And it's, it's kind of framed who I am. And I know that you wanted to be a lawyer and your father discouraged you in following in his footsteps. Um, uh, what, what advice and how did he articulate this advice to discourage you from becoming a lawyer? So my dad was a lawyer for many years. Uh, by the time he com- concluded his career, he had served 14 years as a judge in the high court. Um, throughout his career, he had been quite active in uh, advocating and facilitating the entry and advancement of Black people into the legal profession, Black men and women. Uh, And much of that work was done through the Black Lawyers Association. So he was quite aware of not just where the opportunities were, were, but but what the need was around um, access for Black professionals and presence by Black professionals. Um, so, so when I was wrapping up high school and applying to universities and saying to him, I want to be a lawyer and I want to apply for, for legal studies, um, his advice was, don't do a BA or a BPROC. I want you to go and do a commerce degree. And the reason I want you to do that is because I want you to uh, focus on commercial law because, and this is what he said to me, he said, look, there are few Black people in this specialized space of the law and that's where you should go. So that was the conversation with him. So yeah, I think he made peace with that. I wanted to be a lawyer, uh, but he, he had he was channeling me in a direction where he felt uh, black people needed to be much more represented. As it turned out, I didn't become a lawyer. Um, I went and did my BCom, and through that, I I, I fell in love with the accountancy profession. And interestingly, I, I'm not sure it was about abandoning my dream of being a lawyer. The, the reason I opted to pursue studies in the CA profession comes out of a conversation I had with somebody in the profession at the time. I was doing some vacation work at a firm and they said to me, um, there are a few black people in the profession. When I asked why, they said, well, because black people struggle to pass the board exam. And I said, but why? And I couldn't get an answer. So I decided, guess what? I'll do it because that's where black people ought to be represented. So it was kind of consistent with that old conversation. a different profession, yeah. Especially when other people can't make it, it's like, well, let's see what it is that they can't make, you know? Yeah, and who said black people can't? I'm yeah. going to demonstrate that they can. Yeah, uh, and because and I and I'll do it, and, I, and I'll be honest, that's really why I became a CA. <laughs> the challenge of it all. So then you went to university, studied towards your accounting degree. What is the vision then you had for your life? I mean, how did you think it will unfold after that? And has it lived up to it? You know, I was never quite clear about exactly what I was going to do with my career. But what I knew for sure was that I needed to do something that would see me making a difference in people's lives. And I remember having a conversation with a um, with another chartered accountant uh, who was slightly older than me, and he was asking me, what do you want to do with your career? And my answer was exactly that. I, I want to make a difference in people's lives. Um, and I remember him actually laughing at me because it just sounded so odd. Um, so my burning ambition has always been about that. Um, and 
if I look at my career, if I look at the things I've chosen to do, um, they've largely been about service, about a duty to support others, to facilitate the advancement of others in the profession that I know most. Um, so yeah, I think in many ways I'm on track uh, with what I set out to do. Uh, it's not been a perfect journey by any means, um, but if I look at it um, 20 plus years in, I, I think I'm on track to to fulfilling that young girl's ambition. And you're doing well. We're very proud of you. Thank you. Um, what do you think your unique value proposition is? You know, what makes you memorable and impactful when you walk into spaces, whatever those spaces are? So I'm a professional at heart. I, I take very seriously the, the notions about what a professional is and how they show up, right? And the professional competence, the UK, all of those things that, that must um, uh, be associated with, with professionals. But I've differently, I've embraced a duty to serve society. And I think that's what makes me different. For me, um, my professional skills I see as a conduit to, to fulfill this burning ambition to serve society and to make it better than it otherwise would have been had I not been here. Um, as a person that walks into a room, I think my compassion, my empathy comes through. Um, and that's, that's a differentiator as well. And it's empathy that's been built uh, through many crucibles that I've seen through my life and survived in my life. And I, um, I think they've, instead of making me bitter, um, they've made me rather softer and more gentle. Um, so as driven as I am, uh, I tend to be much more compassionate and, and um, empathetic than, than what people would um, ordinarily associate with, with um, a, a tough um, accountant. Um, so I think that's, that's what's unique. I, I have this duty to serve society and to make a difference and I do it in, in a compassionate kind and empathetic way. It is an intoxicating combination. Um, you are tall, you are beautiful. Have your looks, if at all, affected the expectations of how you will perform in the positions that you occupy and how do people generally react to you? More than being beautiful, what I'm clear is that the things that people see first are that I'm black, that I'm a woman, and often I'm younger than they expect. And that tends to uh, form some expectations on how I will show up. So what, what I'm clear about is I've got to keep disproving that. Um, and then that's a hard toll I put on myself, I acknowledge, but it's been part of my experience. Um, and it all started, if I kind of take it back around why I carry this need to just work that much harder, this acceptance that I'll get half the credit, uh, this acceptance that the, the judgment on any mistake I make will be that much greater. It comes even from... Uh, when I was 11 years old, I, I left Sochanguve, a, a township school there, and transitioned into um, a, a boarding school, a private school. Um, and in my first test, and this was now, I was 11 years old, I was in grade, uh, was standard four, that's grade six. So I arrive, and uh, our first test is a comprehension English test, and I'm the only black child in the class. Uh, and that's what's different about me. We're all girls, but I'm the only black child in the class. 
And um, I beat these girls at this comprehension class, a test. And uh, the headmistress of the junior school comes to the class to deliver these results. So she disrupts the class, asks the teacher to excuse her, calls me up front. And so I stand in the front of the class with her and she proceeds to announce to the rest of the class, who are all white girls, predominantly English speaking, um, that, look, how could you guys, how could you girls allow this girl who's just arrived from a township school to beat you at an English comprehension test? Well, now, that, that was tough because it, it ingrained in me a notion that I'm always going to be moving against the grain and I therefore have to try that much harder um, uh, and, and accept that not everybody's going to like it. Um, and and uh, keep doing it regardless. Um, much later in my career, so uh, a quick story about five years ago, I, I went to a function and I'm introduced as a Deputy Auditor General. I deliver a speech. At the end of it, I sit down at the dinner table and, and the man next to me, who's a senior leader in that institution, says to me, so, so how long have you been an accountant? And I realized that that answer, that question wasn't an innocent one. I think this poor man was trying to calculate the years in me and couldn't match them to, to this person he see next to him. And uh, when I said, well, you know, over 15 years now, it took a few minutes, you know, of him in his head. And you could just yeah. see it. He was just completely <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think for me, what I'm clear about is I, I do have to work that much harder than everybody else. And I have to have accepted that I won't get as much credit as I deserve. But I've also accepted that if I do this and I continue to do it well, it should make it, make it easier for the generation of young, black, uh, ambitious, capable women that, that follow. Those are some of the stories, uh, wisdom that people should understand about going to these private schools um, and Model C schools, that it's not easy. They hear the accent and they think, we think we're better than, and yet they actually don't understand what we've gone through in order to keep our humanity when we are not being appreciated. But thank you for that story. I really appreciate it. Uh, so when I spoke to you last year, trying to get you to have this conversation with me, your surname was different. And I keep on telling you I love your surname. So stop changing this Malulega surname. Um, so now you are back to your surname. Uh, but what has been the emotional journey that you've had to go through? First to change your surname to be something else and then to change it back. Um, I think sometimes we we misunderstand uh, some of the emotions that go into changing somebody's surname. I mean, Dudum saw me, I'm married to my surname and I love it. Um, you know, I, I like think of now our names and surnames have become part of our personal branding. So to change it shows a lot of commitment. Uh, I mean, you have humans like Oprah who don't even need to change their surname. <laughs> Whether you, you don't even need to have a surname. Oprah, we know what you're talking about. So talk to me about how does it feel? What's this emotional journey that you go through when you change your surname? So by the time I changed my surname, I'd been through the emotions. So, so the, the reality is I've actually changed my surname twice. I've been married twice. And in both contexts, I changed my surname and, and changed back. 
Um, if I had it all to do again, I probably wouldn't do that because it's 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 emotionally draining. But importantly, it's also a bit of a, uh, an awkward thing because you almost invite people into your personal dramas because now they must understand. Oh, you change your surname again? What's all this? Um, so I think for me, that's the difficulty, just the awkward part about about the stuff being public. Um, and then the admin hassle. So, you know, I've been to home affairs a few times. <laughs> and I've been to get my driver's license changed a few times. Yeah. On the emotional part of it, other than contending with the marriages that didn't work out and the, you know, the public scrutiny that comes with that, um, at a deep personal level, my surname is one, even if, I'm called by another name. Who I am hasn't changed. Um, you know, my my clan names, my praise names, these Tagaz and Ozami have always remained what they are, and I hold that very dear. What also helped is that uh, in my marriage, my in-laws would refer to me using my maiden name. And I think that's a cultural piece that we should value. Um, around African cultures, you know, about you remain umasbanban, and I saw it even with my grandmother. She remained okay. She's longer. You don't use the surname; you use the father's name. So she remained Wasem right until she died. My mother, my father used to call very lovingly, and he'd refer to her as Wapit hmm. because that's the father's name. So I think the the identity politics I, I don't struggle with too much um, because of that. Um, as I say, if I had it all to do again, I, I would have just stayed in Manuleke. I promise I'm not changing again. Please don't. Uh, yeah. I, think I've, I've I don't care how amazing he is. You are more amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so you were the first woman to be appointed Deputy Auditor General since the existence of the Office of the AG in South Africa. Your younger sister, Basani, has is the CEO of Africa ba African Bank. She's the first black woman banking CEO in South Africa. What are your thoughts about the fact that in the 21st century, we are still celebrating first women in anything when we are supposed to be a non-sexist non and equal society? What's clear is that we're not yet a non-sexist and equal society that we must accept. It's great that we aspire towards it. It's important that we keep finding ways to dismantle the systems that entrench inequality, that entrench sexism and racism, right? So, so it's important that we keep grappling with what are these systems, call them for what they are and, and, and find ways to dismantle them. It's a long journey. Um, that we in the 21st century tells you that the journey is long and progress is slow. But that we're able to celebrate those moments tells you that there is progress. Um, ours is to uh, continue on those journeys, stay with the topics, stay with this thing, because when we celebrate the first woman or first black woman to run a bank, you're celebrating the success that is attributable not just to the individual, and I, and I tell you, my sister is awesome. Um, the, the, the celebration is not purely on her achievement. Um, it is a celebration of the achievement of many who've contributed to creating this moment, yeah. um, who've advocated, who've actively um, 
uh, campaigned for 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 change. Um, so so the moment of celebration is one, as I say, we should honor because it's about a particular milestone. Uh, it's a validation of young people's dreams. Um, it's an inspiration for for young women everywhere to. Um, see that it is possible and to strive to achieve that and even more. Yeah. So, so I, I think it, it's a slightly complex question that you're as, asking. Um, I accept progress is slow, but it's good that we note that it's there so that we never go backwards. Um, and, and to accept that the burden that's, or the responsibility that rests with those of us who are first DAGs or first CEOs or whatever it may be, is to fulfill the promise associated with our sending to those roles. Um, knowing full well that we stand um, on the hopes and dreams of others who've come before, and we must make sure we don't stand in the way of the dreams of those who are to come after us. That is part. I've never heard somebody talk about it in that sense, because... It's very true that somebody's dreaming. You, you've made them aware that it's possible. And um, the whole idea of removing the ladder, which I hate, I, I don't like that metaphor at all. Um, but to understand that it's somebody's dream too, that we should help them as we achieve our own. Um, you're very passionate about the auditing profession. Do you think it's a dying profession? Um, what do you think auditors should be doing to remain relevant, particularly with the artificial intelligence increasingly being integrated into audit? Do I think the profession is becoming less relevant? Absolutely not. I, I don't think it's a dying profession. In fact, if you look at the idea that with technology, um, the ability for those that decide on how capital is allocated um, is enhanced. They can make those decisions quickly and implement them fairly quickly. So for any country that's looking to attract and retain investment capital so that it can use it to grow its economy and meet the aspirations of, of their own um, citizens, um, it's important that they are serviced by a credible, reliable, trusted accountancy profession and accountancy being broader, including accountants and auditors on the other hand. So I, I think the, the role of accountants has probably become much more important now uh, as being central to a country's ability to maintain its investment attractiveness as a destination yeah. for capital. Um, and the impact of the uh, work of, of, of that sector, of, of the accountants and professions, accountants and, and auditors, the impact of their work uh, is becoming even more important in terms of how it's going to affect the lived experience of generations of, of, of South Africans. Yeah. How should they make themselves more relevant? By leaning into the key principles and values of the profession. Because it's one thing to be technically competent. But probably more important is to be trusted because you provide relevant timely information, trusted because people know what you stand for, trusted because you are tuned to what the country needs 
um, and, and, and how you support the country. Um, so leaning into the very basis of our ethics principles, which talks about how as accountants, we are here to serve the public interest rather than the interest of a single client. And for me, that's a very noble cause. And it's easy to make, make one sound altruistic when we say that. But actually, our code of ethics says that. It says that we are here to serve the public interest. So never has it been more important or urgent for auditors to lean into that responsibility to serve in the public interest, to make sure that their work is rather supporting the building of the society we want, one that's prosperous, one that's just. So I don't think it's a dying profession. I think it's ever more important. And I think we have a lot of, due to, a lot of work to do in terms of um, building, rebuilding the trust the society must have in us if we are to be that a, is, a That is such a crucial thing you've just said, considering the public scandals we've had around the profession in terms of, I mean, when you look at Steinhoff, you look at a wire card, uh, you look at, um, I don't know, in America, just read about lacking, lacking coffee incorporated. I mean, how can they regain you talking about this code of ethics and, you know, how do we regain and live the code of ethics instead of just having it hanging somewhere? I think we must talk about it much more. Um, and the good thing is there are many more people who are living up to that principle, but we must talk about it much more. Um, we must um, stand for the truth of what this profession should be about. Um, you know, the, the stories about specifics on Steinhoff, on Tongard Hewlett, on Wirecard, all of those stories will still be told in terms of what actually happened, who's accountable and how they're being held accountable, whether through criminal charges or civil action or even disciplinary action by the, by the relevant professional body. So I think those things will still happen. But how we rebuild trust, I think we've got to acknowledge that in many ways we've lost our focus on serving the public interest. Um, we've got to start talking much more about it so that you uh, highlight, if you, well, you focus all of us on this greater good. And then of course we must still discipline those who do wrong and hold them accountable. And fortunately that's still the minority of people. But we must talk much more amongst each other and with society about the role we should be playing. Um, and, and that conversation with society must be one where we're not sitting as auditors and explaining to the public why they don't understand what an auditor does. I think we've got to step into the role of understanding what society expects and grappling with how we actually meet it. So I found that in too many instances, we're seized with talking about, okay, but the problem is that there's an ecosystem where an accountant prepares financials, an audit committee member signs of financials or approves financials for audit, uh, and then an auditor comes at the very end of the process. So you can't always hold the, the auditor accountable for that which should be done by others down the chain. Yes, well and good. But we've got to accept that it is accountants who are the internal auditors, who are the audit committee chairs and members, who are the CFOs. And all of us create this ecosystem that society expects particular things from. Yeah. So instead of grumbling about 
the idea that society doesn't understand or that it's not us. I think all of us in the ecosystem ought to be having a much more pointed discussion about what are the things that make it difficult for us to fulfill our designated role in society and how do we how do we dismantle them systematically? And of course, you've got to do it with caution. You've got to preserve the good things about the profession, of which there are many. Yeah. But I do think yeah. we need to be frank about the notion that we've lost sight of the public interest um, principle um, and, and start to bring back some way of um, maintaining the nobility of our profession. And I mean, there are a host of things. It may well be that it's the things that are happening in the, in the UK where firms are now required to split audit from, from advisory. Yeah. It may, I mean, that might be the trick. You know, I think we've got to grapple with them instead of delaying the conversation by putting um, forward the notion that, well, we're just misunderstood. And also, I think all of us, I mean, I sit on an audit committee in one organization. Uh, the co combined assurance model needs to be uh, interrogated more and, and, and refined. Um, a lot of us are still not implementing it. Uh, but uh, that's another conversation for another day. Um, I could talk to you forever, but uh, I would like us to to end off now, but give us some wisdom, you know, what's the one thing that uh, you would like to share with, with our audience? At this moment, um, the thing that's in my heart is this idea that the world is in a very difficult place. Um, our country is in a difficult place with multiple crises that we're trying to deal with. And it's easy to become despondent. Um, it's easy to check out, much more difficult to remain courageous and resilient, much more difficult to remain hopeful that things will get better, yeah. uh, to accept that we must get better together. Yeah. So I think let's accept that. Let's lean into this notion that uh, we must remain hopeful, we must remain of good courage, um, and we must be resilient. The one thing I'm enjoying from what you've just said is we must get better. We need to be better people. We can't expect a better country if we ourselves are not going to be ambitious enough to be better human beings. Thank you so much. Can you understand why I needed this conversation? <laughs> Thank you, Dudu. I think I needed it too. It's been great chatting to you. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, a beautiful human being. Uh, our Deputy Auditor General. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Durum Somi. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified Conversations with Durum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.